0: Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump.
1: And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics, and he's a professional at the highest level, Roger Stone. All of these
0: presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is roger stone this is the roger stone show on 77 wabc
1: welcome i'm roger stone and this is indeed the roger stone show at 77 wabc radio we are the crown jewel of am radio and we've got a jam-packed show for you today I want to start on a personal note. Last Sunday, uh, I announced the sad news that my sister's only son, my nephew, uh, passed away last week, now two weeks ago, uh, of a fentanyl overdose. Uh, and the, uh, the incredible number of letters and cards and text messages and emails and prayers from so many in the 77 WABC audience uh, has really been touching and comforting for my sister uh, and my family uh, and for myself. Uh, I think of you who listen in here uh, every Sunday for two hours from four to six as our growing family and I want you to know how much we appreciate your prayers uh, and your condolences. Uh, politics, 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 uh, as Mel Brooks said in the great movie History of the World Part One. If you've never seen that movie, I highly recommend it. Uh, But let me make a promise to you because we get a lot of uh, messages on this as well. Before the end of today's program, I am going to lay out my mother's meatball recipe. This was my grandmother's meatball recipe. We've had a lot of requests for it, so if you want to grab a pad and paper so you can write this down later in the show before we leave you today, I'm going to tell you how to make the greatest meatballs you have ever had. The uh, presidential contest is off in earnest. Uh, Donald Trump uh, scoring uh, a, a victory in Iowa that was really won for the history books the previous high water mark was my old boss, Senator Bob Dole of Kansas, who won the caucuses there in 1988 by a margin of 12.5 points. That was the greatest single margin prior to the recent Iowa caucuses. Donald Trump won by a stunning uh, 30 points, uh, three times uh, as much as Dole, setting a new record, uh, as I think most of you now know, Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis struggled for a very distant and narrow second-place finish, Uh, and then Nikki Haley, the former UN ambassador, uh, came in third. Now, after that, uh, after the smoke had cleared, Nikki Haley said, well, this is now down to a two-person race. Considering that she had come in third, she took a little guff for that, but She actually turned out to be correct just uh, days later when Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, having spent $300 million running for president, announced that he was suspending his campaign uh, and uh, issued a rather grudging uh, endorsement of President Donald Trump. Uh, Now, since that time, he has continued to snipe at Trump in his social media postings, politics doesn't hate anything more than they do a sore loser. That's why when Richard Nixon very narrowly lost the presidency in 1960, uh, and figures as important as President Dwight Eisenhower and New York Governor Tom Dewey urged Nixon to contest that election against Jack Kennedy, Nixon knew uh, that he would only come across as a sore loser. And if he were to challenge the election result, uh, well, he would probably never be president. Uh, Then, of course, Trump follows up his victory uh, in uh, Iowa with an incredible and more interesting victory in New Hampshire. Now, New Hampshire is interestingly unique uh, because the secretary of state there, actually in violation of state law, uh, allowed uh, independents to vote in the Republican primary. While there is a a section of state law that allows this, it requires certification by the New Hampshire Republican State Committee to allow it. No such certification uh, was ever issued, so an argument could actually have been made uh, that the primary itself, well, it was illegal. But I think this was the beta test for the Biden campaign in a way. You see, almost 50% of those who voted in the Republican primary in the Granite State were not Republicans. That's right. They were independents. Uh, A PAC called uh, Working for Nikki Haley actually re-registered 8,000 Democrats by the October 6 deadline, changing their registrations to independent so they could vote in the Republican primary. Uh, and then New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, uh, who supported Nikki Haley, uh, worked uh, with an enormous budget to try to get independents to invade the Republican primary. If you look at the votes of just Republicans, Donald Trump actually got 70% of the vote in New Hampshire. But after you look at the primary total having been flooded with almost 50% non-Republicans, well, Trump still pulled out a 11-point victory. Very solid when you consider what he was up against. Trump, by the way, spent about $18 million total. Uh, I'm still examining uh, Nikki Haley's total spending. You have to put together her campaign spending as well as her PAC spending. But right now, I have her at about $34 million. Plus, of course, she got uh, a healthy assist from the legacy media that would like her to emerge as the chief challenger to Donald Trump. Uh, Even the New York Times, which I often disagree with, uh, reported in a great piece by Shane Goldmacher that Donald Trump's victory in New Hampshire provided him the second of an opening of pair of wins in the Republican nomination fight that accelerated his push for the party to coalesce around him and deepened questions about the path forward for Nikki Haley, his lone remaining rival. Again, no Republican candidate has ever won the first two states and then ultimately not secured the presidential nomination, a fact that Donald Trump himself noted in his victory speech that night. Trump also made history in yet another way. That is, he managed to amass the largest single total vote of any candidate for president ever running uh, in the New Hampshire Republican primary. Uh, that would be Republican or Democrat, by the way. This uh, beta test that I speak of uh, was reflected in the fact that although Joe Biden's name was not on the ballot in the Democratic primary, uh, there was a massive right-in effort staged for him so as not to embarrass an incumbent president. You see, the Democratic National Committee changed their uh, nomination rules to essentially strip the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary uh, of their delegates uh, so as to originally not set up a early contest where Joe Biden would have had to face Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who at that point had announced his intention to run as a Democrat. The very low turnout in the Democratic primary in New Hampshire really reflects the fact that left-leaning independents were pushed into the Republican primary in order to try to embarrass uh, Donald Trump. It didn't work. A win is a win, is a win. Then in the following days, I think Donald Trump made a great decision. There was a motion within the Republican National Committee to pass a resolution uh, that would declare him the presumptive nominee. Uh, I saw this and I regarded that news with some alarm, uh, but then Donald Trump, hours later, put out a statement in which he said, While I greatly appreciate the Republican National Committee, that's the RNC, wanting to make me their presumptive nominee, and while they have far more votes necessary to do it, I feel, for the sake of party unity, they should not go forward with this plan, but that I should do it the old-fashioned way and finish the process at the ballot box. Thank you to the RNC for your respect. Uh, and the devotion you have shown me. Uh, This uh, was a wise move because had Trump uh, acceded to this RNC plan to be arbitrarily declared the nominee before the votes in Nevada coming up next week, before the votes in South Carolina coming up the week after that, before the votes uh, on Super Tuesday coming up in early March, well, his critics would have said that uh, He was acting uh, undemocratically. Ironic for people who have essentially cleared the field and made it impossible for anyone to challenge Donald Trump, uh, pardon me, challenge Joe Biden in the Democratic contest. Bad news this week for former Trump advisor Steve Bannon. Uh, Bannon attempted to dismiss uh, a fraud indictment uh, by the state of New York Uh, which uh, will go to trial in new york city Uh, the uh, court in new york rejected his motion for dismissal specifically bannon is accused of defrauding donors in a we build the project online fundraising campaign that was supposed to raise money for trump's signature domestic project bannon i should note has pleaded not guilty in this case, uh, and you're not uh, you're not guilty in this country until you've had a fair trial and you're declared guilty. This trial is now scheduled for May. Uh, specifically, the Manhattan District Attorney said that Bannon had defrauded donors of a nonprofit organization by falsely promising that none of the money they donated would be used for salaries, uh, but then funneled hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, to his confederates uh, by laundering it, according to prosecutors, through third-party entities. We're, we're going to be following that case. We also have some, uh, a great lineup for you today. Uh, not only uh, did uh, do we have Darren Beatty, who is the editor-in-chief, uh, actually senior editor, of revolver.news uh, with shocking uh, analysis of January 6 footage regarding two pipe bombs that were placed uh, outside the Republican National Committee uh, and outside the Democratic National Committee. Uh, these uh, raise These videos, which he's going to walk us through, raise really extraordinary questions uh, about what really happened uh, on January 6th. We have still not had, despite the promises uh, of uh, Speaker uh, Mike Johnson, uh, a full disclosure of all the government footage of the events of that day. But what we have already seen is shocking and bolsters Mr. Beatty's contention that what we saw was not an insurrection but as he calls it a fed surrection uh, we have a great interview with him coming up also uh, a, a private citizen named kevin klein uh, who has a very interesting story he's just an average hard-working american uh, but when he learned that his great uncle's remains uh, uh, because he had served on the USS Arizona, which was attacked and sunk at Pearl Harbor, uh, and the remains of his uh, comrades had never been recovered or identified, he took on a personal mission uh, to identify using DNA uh, the, the remains of those brave serv- servicemen who died uh, on December 7th, Uh, who were on the USS Arizona. This is an extraordinary story of one man making a difference. Uh, When the government refused to step up, this citizen did step up. It's a really, really terrific and inspiring story of true citizen action. Uh, Also coming up on the show, Paul Inglesia, a lawyer from New Jersey, joins us uh, with, I think, a very compelling and legitimate legal argument about whether Nikki Haley is actually constitutionally eligible to be president of the United States. Uh, it's a controversial argument, uh, but uh, I have seen, I've read his substantial paper on this. I think he makes an extraordinarily a good case for his argument, uh, and he will join us. And then once again, before I let him go, you're going to get my mother's meatball recipe. I promise you that. Other uh, stunning political revelations this week. A new book is out that tells us that Joe Biden did not want Kamala Harris as his running mate that Joe Biden in fact hates Kamala Harris because back in the debates in 2020, Kamala Harris called Joe Biden out as a racist. I had to go back and look at that footage. I'd forgotten about that. The truth is it was Joe Biden who was elected to the US Senate in 1972, uh, riding the crest of opposition to the desegregation of the Wilmington-Delaware school system, famously saying that the desegregation of the Wilmington schools would make them a racial jungle, and I don't want my daughter going to school in a jungle. That is a direct quote from the Wilmington Journal. Uh, It's also Joe Biden, of course, who was the author of the 1994 uh, crime bill uh, which is uh, the legislation signed into law by President Bill Clinton who at that point uh, running for re-election and seeking to look tough on crime shifted the war on drugs uh, which had started under President Richard Nixon and was focused on drug kingpins drug dealers and drug cartels uh, to uh, include the now, harsh mandatory penalties for the first time nonviolent crime of possession of small amounts of drugs. Uh, This uh, has been criticized by many as racist because these laws and these mandatory penalties in which judges have no discretion uh, and no right to consider the circumstances of those charged, Uh, have been responsible for the mass incarceration for hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of poor people, and specifically African uh, Americans. So now we're told that Joe Biden wants to dump Kamala Harris uh, and replace her with Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. Uh, As I reported on this show last weekend, My sources in the Democratic Party, and yes, I do have a few, uh, told me that when Joe Biden uh, had lunch with former President Obama, Obama expressed his growing concern that Joe Biden was not up to the task of running for re-election. We read subsequently that certain key Obama staffers have now moved over to the Biden campaign. Now, I have been on the record for over two years. Uh, I believe I am the first person in the country uh, tuned into politics to say that I believed that in the end, Joe Biden would not be the Democratic nominee for president uh, and that the Democratic nominee would be former First Lady Michelle Obama. I noticed just this past week, Bill O'Reilly has jumped on this train. So has Dick Morris. Uh, it, it is amazing how many folks are, are now echoing what I said two months ago. But then people say, well, how would this work? I mean, the filing deadlines for the primaries and the caucuses, some of them have already passed. Some of them uh, are, will be up soon. Uh, the way I think the scenario works uh, is that uh, Biden is allowed to, uh, having had all the opposition essentially been defanged, he is allowed to roll through the primaries and caucuses uh, to get the uh, necessary number of delegates to be nominated at their Chicago convention. How coincidental that the conventions in Chicago, by the way, hometown of, oh, Michelle Obama. But then shortly before the convention, I predict that Joe Biden will announce that for reasons of health, as much as he would like to accept the nomination and seek another term, um, he is going to be stepping aside. At that point, he can legally, uh, under party rules, release his delegates, and the convention would be free to nominate whoever they wanted to nominate. Uh, I believe that there, at that point, will be a major effort to draft Michelle Obama uh, as, frankly, the strongest uh, candidate the Democrats could field. Uh, She and her husband can raise unlimited money Uh, She has no political track record to attack. She can actually divorce herself from some of the current and less popular policies of the Biden administration, despite the fact that, in fact, this is actually the third term of Barack uh, Obama. Uh, And if you examine her personal journey, Uh, Just as Barack Obama was the head of a voter registration drive uh, before uh, moving to politics, uh, Michelle Obama now heads a voter registration drive. Barack Obama published uh, two biographies laying out the narrative of uh, his life, or at least his version of it. Michelle Obama has now laid out in two biographies uh, the uh, story of her life, or at least her version of it. Uh, And it it is not incidental that Barack Obama gave the keynote at the convention that nominated John Kerry for president. Four years later, Barack Obama uh, came out of nowhere to defeat the vaunted Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton machine to snatch the nomination, who was the keynote speaker at the last Democratic National Convention when they nominated uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, well, that would be Michelle Obama. Folks who snicker at this idea or make jokes about it or about her do so at their own great political peril. uh, I'm convinced that she would be a very, very difficult candidate uh, to be. Uh, We will see how this plays out uh, and we'll keep you posted on it. The uh, trials of Donald Trump continue in New York City. Uh, It's a little confusing because in the initial E. Jean Carroll defamation lawsuit, uh, there was an absolute finding uh, that Donald Trump did not rape E. Jean Carroll, a woman who claimed uh, that Trump had pushed her uh, into a dressing room at the posh Bergdorf-Goodman department store uh, and raped her there. Uh, but the court in that decision did find that Trump had defamed her. Then E. Jean Carroll, who had a pretty disastrous interview on CNN where she actually opined for Anderson Cooper, that uh, she found the concept of rape sexy uh, and that she had a cat uh, with a graphic last name. Uh, you could see Anderson Cooper turn red, move to a break rather quickly. Uh, she is now, as I think most people know, filed a second defamation suit. Uh, and the judge uh, this past week, when Donald Trump sought to testify in his own defense uh, was essentially not allowed to do so because he had declined to testify in his own defense. In the prior trial, uh, the judge, a judge Kaplan, announced uh, to a shocked courtroom uh, that uh, Donald Trump had uh, digitally uh, 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 invaded uh, the genitalia of uh, E. Jean Carroll, Uh, This was clearly meant for the political shock value. Uh, I don't know what these uh, partisan Manhattan judges think they're doing, but I can tell you out in the country, people do not think that these are fair proceedings. uh, And despite the findings uh, in the New York judicial system, well, they also don't think it's fair. Uh, I also note, uh, and I have mentioned this previously, that now, finally, after 187 years, the city of New York has removed the statue of founding father Thomas Jefferson that was outside uh, City Hall. Uh, That is uh, really quite extraordinary, uh, and it signals what is about to come. I believe that there will be a move to take away, to take down the statue of Christopher Columbus in New York City. That statue has been removed in other cities. This is why I belong to the Italian American Civil Rights League. You can find it at IACRL.org. It is a non-profit organization uh, it, everybody involved is a volunteer. There is no paid staff. There are no paid consultants. There is no fancy office space. Every single penny is spent uh, to protect American history and heritage uh, within the, the uh, culture of the United States. Uh, and I can tell you right now uh, that if there is a move by New York City to remove the Columbus Statute, there will be a litigation to oppose that. So I urge you, uh, if you are so inclined, to go to the website of the Italian American Civil Rights Organization, that's IACRL.org, and sign up there. Uh, Again, every penny uh, goes to the program. Uh, If you go to the website, you will see... uh, A statement of purpose, a mission statement. Uh, Whether you're Italian American or not, uh, we would love to have your support. The other political development that I found interesting is the fact that the no labels effort, this is an effort to put yet another presidential candidate on the ballot, uh, a third party candidate, announced that they had actually achieved ballot status in 26 states. Now, as I have told you before here on the Stone Zone, getting on the ballot for an independent, for any office, whether it's President of the United States or whether it's the City Council, is extraordinarily difficult. That's because the laws that govern ballot access are written by republicans and democrats working together to eliminate the competition they do it in two ways first of all they make it difficult to have an intra-party contest so incumbents never get challenged by party outsiders uh, but also they make it particularly difficult to get on the ballot as an independent or a third party candidate What do I mean by that? Well, for example, there are states like Utah where you simply sign a form and you pay a fee uh, and you're on the ballot. Not so in New York State or, or, say, Ohio or Illinois or a number of other large states. There you have to get an extraordinarily large name of certified voter signatures that must be identical to the way the person is registered. So, in other words, uh, if I'm in the voter registration books as Roger J. Stone Jr., and I sign the petition Roger Stone, well, that signature under challenge would be disallowed. It's an extraordinarily difficult process, Uh, and if the no-labels people who claim to be trying to create a third uh, way Uh, are actually on the ballot in 26 states, that would be an accomplishment. But then the question becomes, who is uh, their candidate? It was revealed this week in a terrific piece uh, in The Hill by Kevin Cirilli that the No Labels Party, which is now chaired by uh, former Senator Joe Lieberman from Connecticut, uh, has been in some conversations with Nikki Haley. Uh, there's right off the bat uh, some problem there because, you see, many states have what is called a sore loser law. That means that if you appeared on the ballot in an intra-party primary contest but did not win the nomination, well, you would then be barred from uh, appearing on the ballot as an independent. So uh, if Nikki Haley continues past uh, South Carolina, where things frankly are not looking good for her, according to the, lo- the latest polling, she could probably not be able to stand uh, as a candidate for no parties. By the way, once you're on the ballot and the date has passed by which you can remove your name, whether you're running or not, that primary has to be held. So Ron DeSantis, for example, had up until December 12th to remove his name from the March 15th Florida primary ballot. Uh, and now it is too late to do so. So Florida will have a Republican presidential primary, uh, and uh, they will be uh, face-to-face with President Donald Trump. Who are the no-labels people going to go to? Could it be Senator Joe Manchin? Something very telling, their executive director said. Uh, And that was, well, the sore loser law might prevent Nikki Haley from running for president, but we don't think it applies to candidates for vice president. Thanks for tuning in to The Roger Stone Show today here at 77 WABC. It's where you can learn all the political scuttlebutt, and we'll be right back.
2: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go.
0: It's The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC.
1: Welcome back. I'm Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC Radio. We are the crown jewel of AM radio. Take a minute to download the 77 WABC Radio app, the Red Apple app, so you don't miss a single second of the amazing entertainment and talk commentary and analysis that we bring you every single day at 77 WABC. My guest today uh, is Darren Beatty. He is the senior editor at Revolver.News. If you're not familiar with Revolver.News, you need to be. This is some of the tightest, uh, most documented investigative reporting uh, available in the country today. Uh, Also, some excellent opinion pieces there. Uh, This is, uh, I think, one of the most important alternative uh, news sources in the country. Uh, And uh, Revolver.News has really been uh, on the forefront of investigating and exposing exactly what happened on January 6th. Darren Beatty joins us uh, on The Roger Stone Show today.
3: Great to be with you, Roger. Thank you. Uh,
1: as you know, uh, Darren, the the uh, January 6th committee, uh, which was a committee comprised of Democrats who hate Donald Trump and two Republicans who hate Donald Trump, was an oddity in that the uh, recommendations uh, for the committee submitted by the then-minority leader, were rejected by the Speaker, and she wanted essentially, you know, a hanging jury. Uh, And the January 6th Committee proceedings were a one-sided affair, which uh, used uh, uh, selectively edited, and in some cases, AI-enhanced audios and videos, uh, called certain witnesses, ignored the shocking potential testimony of other witnesses, uh, this was all before the election, of course, so designed to move political opinion. But I think most people now realize that this was kabuki theater. This is was not a legitimate investigation into what actually transpired uh, on the at the Capitol on January 6th. Uh, very contentious in the fight for the Republican leadership. Kevin McCarthy, who served very briefly as speaker, uh, vowed to release all of the government camera footage of what happened that day, did not do so. That became a contentious issue and a challenge to his leadership. House Republicans, uh, under the leadership, uh, in this case of Congressman Matt Gates of Florida, uh, removed McCarthy from the chair, replaced him with congressman mike johnson uh, of louisiana who renewed the pledge for full disclosure so that's a good place to start darren has he kept that pledge can the american people see all of the camera footage from government cameras of what transpired that day
3: Um, you know, there's, there's a lot there. I want to start by briefly saying something about the January 6th committee, which you point out was a total sham. Uh, was a complete joke. And it's purpose, but it did have a purpose. The purpose, one, was to obscure and cover up the questions that would actually get to the core of what really happened on January 6th namely the questions that we've been asking and pursuing at revolver.news for years now. They studiously covered up those questions, so that was one. And then secondarily, um, the whole purpose was to basically tee up the indictment against Trump, and moreover, to amplify this deranged thesis that Trump is somehow culpable or somehow instigated an insurrection which never happened in the first place because it wasn't an insurrection. So not only did he not instigate whatever it was, it wasn't an insurrection, but that sham legal theory, which has provenance going all the way back to the lawfare corridors of um, Norm Eisen and a colleague of his called Joe Sellers, that sham legal theory, as we all can see now, is the pretext for removing Trump from ballots in some cases. Essentially, it's a key 2024 pillar because Trump looks to be the front runner, not only for the primary, which is already locked down, but even for the general election. It's clearer that to the Democrats that the only means that they have are extracurricular, um, extra democratic, as it were, um, to refuse Trump a uh, second stay in, in the White House Um, all in the name of democracy, of course. So those are really the stakes. And I think it's important to emphasize that because we're over three years away from January 6th. Some people might be saying, well, why are we still talking about it? Well, the Democrats haven't forgotten about it at all. Uh, Joe Biden gave a big speech on the third anniversary of January 6th, making it very clear that this is a major platform for the Democrats. And that's going to be important as we go forward and discuss our latest piece and the latest video that sort of um, catalyzed this piece. Now, we, I'd like to get into the video in some detail, but because you mentioned the speaker issue, um, my understanding is Speaker Johnson guaranteed the full forty thousand hours or su- such. He's released, I think, like ninety hours, and that was that first media wave of, you know, footage of the Capitol police firebombing of you know, the. The crowd, and we saw some footage of um, uh, January 6th protesters walking kind of peacefully through the Capitol, totally not the insurrection people were saying. And in some instances, we saw footage of Capitol Peace opening doors. This is all very interesting and important and generated a news cycle. But really, this stuff, although it reinforces important things that we knew we already knew them. We had already had video of very similar things. There's been video in circulation of the Capitol Police opening the doors for years now. So this is for people who hadn't been paying attention, this is important to kind of reintroduce the truth about January 6th into the public consciousness and media cycle. But for those paying attention, it didn't really advance understanding. That's why I have to say that this specific a seven-minute clip that's been the subject of one of the most viral political tweet threads in history that I did on this and a bombshell report that we published in Revolver.News. I think this specific seven-minute clip is probably the most important January 6th footage in existence because it will it advances our understanding and takes us very close to definitively cracking open the entire Fed's direction. Post. And the irony about this Um, And I'm a big champion of of Congressman Gates. I think he did heroic work in all of this. But the irony of this is actually that this particular piece of footage um, uh, was released by um, McCarthy under actually tremendous pressure um, from Congressman Thomas Massey. And I understand there are mixed reviews on this, Congressman, but I have to say for the pipe bomb issue specifically and for January 6th, Issue specifically, Massey has been uh, heroically persistent and he really pushed hard and used his leverage to get this specific piece of video out. So I have to commend him for that. And with that, I'm happy to get into why this video is so important. But I'll pause in case you have any reactions.
1: Yeah, well, let's come to the video uh, in a second because uh, it is uh, shocking. Uh, and uh, I've seen your rundown of it, and I I think our listeners want to hear about it. For those who don't know, there were pipe bombs placed at both the Republican and Democratic National Committee headquarters, uh, yet it has never been revealed to us by uh, the government who and why these pipe bombs were placed there, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. It's interesting to me that there is a a body within Congress, uh, the euphemism... It's called BLAG, B-L-A-G. It speaks for the House on all external legal matters. It is comprised of five members, three members of the majority, two members uh, of the minority, uh, and specifically in the case of uh, the Colorado legal actions to bar Donald Trump from the ballot in that state, uh, this uh, majority of this committee filed an amicus brief uh, with the state of Colorado, which basically certified the conclusions of the January 6th committee so that they could then be cited in the Secretary of State's decision uh, and the state Supreme Court's decision. Now, it would be very, very simple for Speaker Johnson to reconvene uh, the Board of blag, where we now have three Republicans and two Democrats, and to decertify uh, the conclusions of the January 6th committee. Uh, And then it could not be used in any of these state proceedings where they're attempting to ban Donald Trump from the ballot based on this false claim that he was involved uh, in insurrection. So... Uh, I just want to raise that point because it raises questions to me about uh, Speaker Johnson, who I very much want to like, but I still have some reservations about it. All right, uh, Darren, tell us about this extraordinary uh, video, which you really provided the first comprehensive analysis of.
3: Indeed. So as you mentioned, there were two pipe bombs associated with January 6th actually planted the evening before. There was one pipe bomb that was ultimately discovered in a back alley by the Capitol Hill Club, which has come to be called the RNC bomb. This one was planted around 8.30 p.m. the previous evening, the evening of the 5th. There was another bomb um, that was planted right outside a bench, outside of the DNC complex, And that was planted, according to surveillance footage in the FBI, at approximately 8 p.m. on the 5th. So the video in question depicts the discovery of the DNC pipe bomb at 1.05 p.m. on the 6th. What we see first is, and people should go to revolver.news. The piece is right up on the top, and you can watch the video and kind of watch along or listen to me and then go there after and reinforce your understanding. But basically in the video, we see an individual come into view. He's wearing a backpack. He approaches a garage. There are two SUVs parked outside the garage of the DNC building the backpack guy who we now know to be a plainclothes capital police officer walks up to the metro pd suv talks to the driver's side then goes to the black suv talks to them they are both part of kamala harris's secret service detail that's important to know and i'll get to why shortly the metro pd car is also part of the detail even though it's metro pd so This guy goes up and he informs them of the pipe bomb within very close proximity, within feet. It's just in the benches that are just out of view of the camera angle at at this point. Now, the first weird thing is, after being informed of the presence of a pipe bomb feet away, the PD and Secret Service, the whole Secret Service detail, they take over a minute before even bothering to exit their vehicle at which point they proceed to stand around in the most unconcerned and lackadaisical fashion imaginable if people listening now go to the site go to revolver.news and look at this video just look at the video between say the 106 mark and the 108 mark and ask yourself Is this how you would imagine the Secret Service of the United States to behave upon being informed that there is an explosive device within feet of them and in very close proximity to their protectee who is the VP-elect? It's stunning, but it gets even worse. In fact, the most egregious component of this video shows a group of children crossing the street in the direction of the pipe bomb, and then once crossed the street walk within feet of the benches where the pipe bomb was placed. And the Secret Service are standing around there. They don't warn the children, they don't say, hey, there's a bomb here, don't come here, nothing. They're standing around as though it's nothing, and they allow the children to walk right by as though it's nothing. So there's a clear lack of concern, not only for their own lives, not only for their own safety not only for the safety of their protectee, Kamal Harris, but also this group of children that just walked by in the most cavalier way you could possibly think of. And so it's very clear, given all of these facts, they somehow knew that the bomb was not a danger. They knew it was a dud. They knew it wasn't a threat. They knew it was fake. But. How would they know that? How would Kamala Harris's Secret Service detail know that the bomb posed no threat? And to make it even more interesting, so the the last part of this video, there's a Capitol Police officer who walks right up to the bomb, snaps a photo, then gives a thumbs up signal to his colleagues, at which point... They hustle for the first time in the entire seven minute. Ago. They're not hustling to to get the bond. They're not hustling to move people out of the way. The hustle begins once the Capitol police officer snaps the photo, and then they all get the heck out of there. And then the video ends. Now, unfortunately, this is only this is an explosive seven minutes, but it's only seven minutes. And I really wish a more expanded version were available to the public because I have. Many people who have well, not many, but a handful of people who have seen the more extended version directly. And what happens after the video ends is also kind of interesting because what they do is they actually get a bomb-safe robot to dismantle and defuse this bomb. So the same, so the same you know bomb that was considered so benign for whatever reason that they're standing around it like nothing. They're not worried for Kamala Harris. They're not worried for the children who just walked by it. But then all of a sudden, once they snap their picture and, and leave the scene, the authorities who come in treat it like, oh my God, it's, it's, it's gonna be Armageddon. We need a bomb-safe robot. That is also bizarre, to say the least. And I'll say something else that's bizarre and frankly kind of damning when you really think about it. It's so obvious and so obviously damning. We're talking about the Secret Service here. They were protecting Kamala Harris. This is at the DNC building on January 6th. Kamala Harris has studiously covered up the fact that she was present in the DNC building on the 6th, studiously. In fact, she did that successfully for almost a year. It leaked almost a year after January 6th. She still hasn't publicly acknowledged it. Now think about how weird that is, Roger you know very well Kamala Harris is pretty much the most opportunistic political creature on this planet. Why would she forego the opportunity to milk politically the fact that she came within a hair's width of losing her life to this ostensible NAGA domestic terror pipe bomb? For that matter, why would Biden in his third anniversary of January 6th speech, and the whole purpose of it was to amplify the severity of January 6th and how evil and dark and domestic terror-like it was. Why would Joe Biden neglect to mention that his own vice president almost lost her life to these MAGA pipe bombs? Keep in mind, they've been trying to amplify this as domestic terror events, These pipe bombs are the closest thing you're gonna have to something resembling a terror event. The government officially considers pipe bombs to be weapons of mass destruction. And Joe Biden doesn't mention in his hour long speech, more than an hour, for this guy, just standing up for a minute is a big deal. If he's gonna dedicate a whole hour to something, it's because it's really important. And yet he doesn't mention that his own vice president was immediately endangered by the by the pipe bomb. I don't think this can be explained by senescence and cognitive decline alone, because Kamala Harris herself hasn't mentioned it, as I as I pointed out. So, you know, we gotta think this is intuitive, you know, this is intuitive motivation here, but we have to ask ourselves in light of this bizarre video with Kamala Harris's Secret Service clearly knowing somehow in advance the bomb of fate. How dark and how dirty and how embarrassing does the truth have to be for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to cover up the fact that Kamala was there when the pipe bomb was there? Because you would think this would be like the biggest January 6th talking point the Democrats would have.
1: All right. And unfortunately, that kind of uh, luck,
3: With that kind of luck, this pipe bomber should have bought a lottery ticket instead of planting the
4: pipe bomb.
1: All right, a great rundown. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank my guest, Darren Beatty, Senior Editor at Revolver.News. I want to urge you to go to Revolver.News and subscribe. You can actually see the videos that Darren has given us an extraordinary rundown on today. And I can assure you that neither Revolver.News nor Darren Beatty will rest until the American people know everything they need to know about the events of January 6th. Thank you for being with us, Darren.
0: Thank you so much, Roger. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you, the rest of the world.
1: And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level,
0: Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC.
1: Welcome back folks. I'm Roger Stone and this is The Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC Radio, the crown jewel of AM radio. Please take a moment to jump over to the App Store and get the 77 WABC Radio app. That way if you miss one of our programs, uh, you can go back and listen to it later or you of course can listen live there as well. For my friends who are not in the greater New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area where I grew up, you can always listen to us at WABCRadio.com. We are live streaming worldwide. There's very few places on the globe you can't hear us here at WABC Radio. Uh, joining me now uh, is Kevin Klein. Uh, uh, Kevin Klein is not a professional genealogist. Uh, He is not a professional researcher. Uh, He is not a historian. Uh, He is a a small business owner. He is a a husband and father of two little girls. Uh, But uh, he became aware of uh, an area where he didn't think the government was doing the right thing, and therefore he has taken it on himself to correct uh, an egregious wrong. As I understand it, while on a family vacation to Hawaii, uh, he sought to visit the memorial to the USS Arizona. The USS Arizona was one of those American ships and pay his respects uh, to his late great uncle, gunner's mate second class, Robert Edwin Klein, who was killed... Along with many others on the USS Arizona during the attack on Pearl Harbor, but whose remains were never recovered. Now, this is different uh, than uh, the way the Pentagon and those in government handled uh, those who were killed on the USS Oklahoma, uh, and 93%. Uh, of those brave Americans who gave their life in the service of their country uh, are buried at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, uh, where the, those killed on the U.S. Arizona uh, are also interred, but evidently not identified. So uh, Kevin Klein decided to start something he calls Operation 85, He's doing it with his own money and his own elbow grease and his own initiative. Uh, And uh, he has a great story of success to tell. Kevin, welcome to The Roger Stone Show.
2: Wow. Thanks, Roger. I appreciate the introduction. You you hit all the the basic information there right on the right, right on the on the nose there. And uh, thanks for having me on and giving me an opportunity to kind of tell my story to, to your audience and use your platform. I greatly appreciate being here.
1: Well, you, the reason your story is so compelling and why I was so interested in getting you uh, on the show is because it does show that one person can make a difference. Uh, even if you have to take on an entire government bureaucracy, uh, one person can with the commitment to do the right thing can make an extraordinary difference. So tell us uh, about your project, uh, what you set out to do, what the obstacles have been. Uh, I'm going to sit back here and let you tell your own story, because uh, it's extraordinarily compelling. And I hope that it inspires other Americans to do their civic duty.
2: Yep. So, so Roger, you were right. Um, my uncle was killed in the Arizona. Or I'm sorry, my great uncle killed in the Arizona. Um, uh, I, knew, I knew his brother, which was my grandfather, so I kind of have this connection with that. But our family, and what I found out through this project, almost every other family, we always were under the assumption that the USS Arizona, the sunken ship that's there in Pearl Harbor, um, is the final resting place of all the missing crew. Um, there were 1,177 killed from the USS Arizona, and that is both U.S. Navy and U.S. Marines because there was an attachment of Marines on the Arizona as well. I believe 53 of the Marines are unknown uh, and still missing, and currently 1,072 of U.S. Navy Americans are also uh, still considered missing. Um, We always assumed that the Arizona ship whether they be entombed in it or surrounding it, the beautiful memorial above it, that was the final resting place of all of the Arizona crew. And to be honest, that's what our family always thought. And we were really, really okay with that. We understand the, the history that happened that day, the, the massive explosion, probably, you know, some bodies were, are never gonna be recovered. They think that some bodies were possibly just disintegrated from the explosion, from the fires. So if you really look at the history from that day, it's very logical to understand, you know, it's not everyone is going to be recovered. It was a tragedy what happened. Um, But we always felt that that was their final resting place. And I think our family and many other families that we've spoken to over the last year, we were all at peace with that. Um, Whether mothers and fathers, you know, they didn't get to bring home their sons. They didn't get to bury them. They didn't get to have a body or that, that last final you know, hurrah for their family member. They didn't get that, but everyone was at peace at least knowing that's where they were. And so was my family and on a bucket list because I've, you know, obviously known stories about my uncle, I have items that he sent home from the USS Arizona, he was four years on the Arizona. So he sent home items from the family that ended up with me. So I've had this little close connection to him. And yes, yeah, so on, on a bucket list was for me to take my me uh, take me and my family to Hawaii and uh, visit the USS Arizona Memorial, pay our respects, which we did, and the National Park Service was wonderful. Uh, they allowed us to do a flag-raising ceremony there on the mast of the ship um, with his name on it, and they presented that to us. It was a wonderful ceremony. Everything was going fine. On the, during the trip, I had purchased a book, Roger, on what had happened that day, and it was, I was reading it on the way on the flight home. Um, I live in Northern Virginia from Hawaii. It's a long flight. Um, and in that book is when I discovered that there were bodies removed from the USS Arizona, partial remains removed from the USS Arizona, um, never identified. Obviously, we were, our country was about to go into a war. The, the area of Pearl Harbor was completely hectic and chaotic. Um, so they removed these bodies. They were unable to identify them, and they buried them. I believe there was 170 that they were unable to identify, and they just temporarily buried them. Um, About two years after the war, I think it was 1947, the U.S. Army began to uh, disinter those 170 from the USS Arizona, and they to do their very best at trying to identify them. And they were able to identify 105 of those 170 and uh basically bring them home most of them were either brought home to family graves here stateside or the ones that were not were buried at the national memorial cemetery of the pacific in oahu which is about 10 miles away from pearl harbor but they were also buried with full honors and with their name on their grave however in 1947 they didn't have any type of dna technology or maybe even didn't understand that many years later they'd be able to use technology to identify these guys So, uh, like many of the um, killed during World War II, they just buried them as unknown. The USS Arizona were buried um, in multiple commingled graves, so they're not single graves. Some have 25 in them. Some have eight. Some have two. Some have one. To be honest, they really don't know. I think they did their best at the time to put um, uh, bodies together in a very respectful way, but they were unable to to bury them. And— we were un- Our family never knew that they were unknown, separated as as most. It was in I believe 2015 that they began a Pearl Harbor project, and they began to um, connect with family members from the USS Oklahoma. Um, now the Oklahoma, when that ship uh, overturned, um, it, it it was not as catastrophic with a fire as the Arizona was. So most of the crew members that died on the USS Oklahoma were actually entombed within the ship. And they made a decision at that time to uh, upright the ship. And over some time, they were able to get into the ship and remove all those bodies. But all those at that point were also unidentifiable. So they, along with the Arizona, buried them in the same uh, Pacific cemetery uh, and marked them as unknown as well. I believe the number was uh, 394 unknowns from the USS Oklahoma. And again, in 2015, the DPAA, along with the U.S. Navy Casualty Office and the U.S. Marine Casualty Office, and many other agencies that are involved in in helping identify Americans, um, they began a project, the, uh, the Oklahoma Identification Project, where they went out and they sought all the surviving family members of those crew members solicited them for their DNA family reference sample. Um, and, and at the end of this project, and at least where we are today, like I said, there were 394 unknowns. They were able to positively identify and give these guys their names back, 362 of the 394. Um, and I want to put a little caveat on that. One of those 362 that were identified was actually a crew member from the USS Arizona. And, um, you know, the chaos of that day, it was a Sunday morning. There were, I believe, different types of religious ceremonies on different ships. So crew members from one ship were allowed to go to other ships. This happened, the attack happened, you know, at 8 a.m. ish on a Sunday morning. It was a surprise attack. Uh, Americans and Navy guys and Marines could have been anywhere. And so during the process of identifying the Oklahoma, they were able to identify one U.S. as Arizona guy they suspected was on the Oklahoma, and they suspected correctly. So that shows me that um, when they separate these commingled graves um, and call them, these are Oklahoma unknowns, these are Arizona unknowns, um, when you get down to it, that may not necessarily be the truth. There could be Oklahoma guys mixed in with these unknown Arizona guys and vice versa. We already know that, that happened. Um, so I was very excited to hear about this project. And when we came home from Hawaii, um, I actually received a letter from the DPAA. Um, and I had given my DNA probably back in 2015 or 14 when I heard about the Oklahoma project, thinking that maybe one day they'll do the Arizona, and I wanted to be the first one to, to, to participate so the Navy did accept my DNA back in 2015 or whenever that was. And because of that, I was in the system, and I would get these letters from the DPAA inviting me once a year to go to their annual family update meeting. And to be honest, at the time I saw no reason to go to it because my family member, according to what I believed, my family member was uh, either in the Arizona or under that memorial. There would be no reason for me to, to you know, go to these meetings. But now finding out that these unknowns – were, uh, in fact, removed, um, I, my interest was piqued. I had to. So this meeting was in Norfolk, Virginia. I live in northern Virginia, so it was about a two-hour drive. So I went to this one. And um, it was a very interesting meeting. Um, and you, at that time, get an opportunity to do a one-on-one with what, they, what is, they call your Navy-assigned casualty officer. Since my family member was in the Navy, I had someone from the Navy. And you were able to go on a one-on-one. And at that point, I had had a lot more questions about, and not just information about my uncle, because I had quite a bit. I wanted information about when the Arizona Project was going to start, just like the Oklahoma. And so I was, I guess, tactful enough to invite some of the higher-up people in that were attending that meeting. I had the director of the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System. I had some historians. Anybody I could drag into my personal one-on-one meeting, I did. And I, I, you know, I laid it on the line. I was very honest. I was appreciative of the information they gave me, but I was very honest and said, hey, I love the success of the Oklahoma. When is the Arizona uh, guys going to be done next? Because we didn't know about these unknowns. And, you know, I think our our nation's mission is to never leave anyone uh, behind. Clearly, that's the, the mission of this government agency assigned to do that. And I was Roger, I was really kind of let down and uh, disturbed at the answer I got. And I don't think it was meant in any nefarious way, but basically the answer I got from one of the officials was, Kevin, the bang is not big enough for the buck. So and they, basically they meant told by you, that was...
1: They told you, as I understand it, that uh, to try to 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 identify... Uh, the remains of those on the USS Arizona would cost $2.9 million, 12,600 man-hours, and could take as much as 10 years, and to the bureaucracy it wasn't worth the cost.
2: Exactly. The bang wasn't big enough for the buck. They would have to go out and find thousands of family members, ask them for their DNA. Those numbers that you're referring to are correct, Roger. That was from a 2022 feasibility study done by the Navy that basically said it's too cumbersome, it's too expensive, uh, it'll take up too much time, we're never going to be able to find all these family members, M- most likely we're never going to be able to do it. What they did decide to do, or a proposal, was, this was in 2021 we found about this, the DPAA director, along with the Navy, um, had were discussing a proposal to just disinter all the 85 uh unknowns from the uss arizona do not identify them uh put them in a box put them into or you know obviously honorably but put them back into the hull of the uss arizona with the rest of the crew wipe their hands and call it a day and say the entire uss arizona crew was accounted for Now that creates many problems one we already know that there was an arizona guy mixed in with the oklahoma guys so for you to for them to just assume that those are all Arizona guys is is not a good assumption they most likely could be wrong also another assumption Roger is when they began the Oklahoma project they were going to disinter one grave which they believed only had five remains however when they disinterred that one grave believing there were five it turns out there were 93 sets of remains in that one grave opening up a can of worms so when i say there they believe there's 85 uss arizona crew members in those graves you know when this project begins there very well could be many more that are identified not only from the arizona but you might find commingled graves of other ships and other missing americans from that day uh commingled with those as well so it's it's a conundrum But the bottom line is the government refused to do it. Uh, They basically said it was never going to happen. They were never going to identify those. And I drove home from Norfolk to to Northern Virginia pretty upset. You know, that drive where you turn the radio off and you talk to yourself the whole way. And it just – the the, um, anger just boiled up for the entire drive. And it was that drive that I decided if the United States government is not going to do this, then I will. Um, and I, and, you know, Roger, like you said, I'm not a re- researcher. I'm not a genealogist. I didn't know what to do, how to start. I just knew I'm a business guy. I can run this like a business, and we're going to figure this out along the way. And that's what we did. And I got to tell you, for, first, I decided to do this as professionally and uh, as I possibly could. Um, I did not want to raise money at the very beginning because I felt that that would cloud the mission of just getting this done. I didn't expect Roger, I would be here a year later, still kind of fighting and arguing with government agencies to do this. Um, but I knew that it could be done. So we set out on this mission and I, what I did first was I actually connected with every government agency that I felt would have some authority over this Touch this in some way, because I didn't want to be a rogue, angry family member. I didn't want to come at that angle. I wanted to come very professional, organized, and say, we're going to do this. We're going to help you. And to their credit, the U.S. Navy, uh, the casualty office, the U.S. Marines, very gung-ho, very excited. They gave me tips on kind of the roadmap to how to do this. The one government agency whose job it is to do this was the one government agency i thought would be the most excited about my announcement however there that in my opinion is the upper levels of this agency the what's called the defense pow mia accounting agency or known as the dpaa i've said that a few times um that has the most bureaucracy and that was the toughest wall to crack um and i'm still trying to crack that wall with them um it's it's been very difficult uh, you know I'm, I'm kind of learning things as i go learning how to maneuver through this i realize that it's going to take um politics it's going to take uh legislative act, uh legislative action to, to, to move this forward it's going to take awareness to to uh to um the um to raise resources and money but bottom line with all of that i'm still have gung-ho we started this April 6 2023 since April 6 2023 we started out I believe there was 19 uh, crew members represented that had started before us uh, today we've sent we've connected with over 760 USS Arizona surviving family members um, that is enough to represent 380 of the crew members that are missing um, and the exciting part of that is We're getting close to a threshold policy that the Department of Defense had set, meaning they would not consider a disinterment and identification project of the Arizona unless they had 60 percent minimum crew members represented with DNA. So 60 percent is 643 crew members need to be represented before they would even begin to officially work on this. That's their policy. So my question was, well, what are you guys doing to get to that sixty percent? How are you reaching out? And the answer was nothing. They have no intention of reaching out. They have no intention of reaching that policy. It was never going to happen. So hence, the Operation Eighty Five started. Family members began getting involved. I've pretty much put my entire life, as you said, on hold. Um, my wife and I are business owners here in Northern Virginia, and she's kind of running the business by herself and I did not expect this to last an entire year but we're closing in on an entire year but the success we're getting is undeniable and the DPAA and the Department of Defense can no longer shrug their shoulders at what we're doing because they are getting family members like you said we have now 380 crew members represented our goal is to not stop at the threshold which is 643 we want every crew member represented but it takes patriots like you, Roger, that allow me to come on your platform, tell the story. You never know where a USS Arizona family member may be. We're not driving around with bumper stickers on our cars, but most of us know that story in our background. We've heard it from our grandparents. We've heard it from our parents. We know there's a crew member. And so while we have volunteer researchers actively, actively working and doing genealogy trees and we're trying to reach out to them proactively, Um, platforms such as yourself and your shows um, allow us to reach out to a broader, wider audience, cast a bigger net, and hopefully some some of your audience are listening to this, have a crew member and their family, and they can reach out to us and kind of help us out that as as best as possible. So that's kind of the story in a nutshell. Uh,
1: It's an amazing amazing story of one person deciding they can make a difference uh let's get some information here i know you've sunk at least fifty thousand dollars of your own money as well as your time and your resources and of course time away from your family Uh, you're doing something the government should be paying for but they decline to do so Uh, i am happy to hear that they are at least for the most part cooperating with you if people want to uh if people have a uss arizona member in their family Uh, and they want to contact you how can they do that
2: yes please reach out um our website is uss arizona.navy that's again it's www.ussarizona.navy. n-a-v-y Um, that's the best ways we have a uh, online portal where a family member can just click on that and enter in some just some generic information it's not too personal and i want to say roger You know, our website and our mission, we're really just the middleman with a third party. We do not collect DNA, our Operation 85. We're just civilians, volunteers. We're not asking you to send in the DNA of those family members. All we're doing is connecting family members to our project. We do verify with, we have um, one uh, board certified genealogist that has volunteered her time to verify the connection. Once the connection is verified, um, then we send that information either to the U.S. Navy, if it was a Navy crew member, or the U.S. Marine Corps, if it was a Marine uh, casualty. And then the the Navy and their Marines pick up. They will actually then call the family member directly, confirm the information. It's the Navy that sends out the DNA kit. Um, It's very quick to do. It's just a cotton swab in your cheek. Everything is there for you. You put the uh, cotton swab back in the collection tube, it's all pre-packaged it's got postage on it and then it gets mailed to the armed forces medical examiner system in De- dover delaware they collect the dna um, many people are always hesitant scared what are they going to do with my dna um, these projects are compartmentalized which means um, there is no sharing of information outside of the uss arizona dna project um, we even have to be careful and we have been um, when we give uh, contact information to the Navy. Um, even though we've given them the name, address, phone number, the relationship, um, the Navy is not allowed to share any imp- personable information back with us because they want to keep make sure that that information is secure. So we found out found ways to kind of work along that. We really uh, uh, identify people with their either Y DNA or mtDNA. So. It's, it's, it's a very complicated process, but we tried to make it as efficient and as easy. And again, this was supposed to take 10 years and 3 million and we're at eight months and about $50,000 of my own money. And those are physical costs, Roger. I, I can't account we have three full-time volunteers. And when I say full-time, they have also put their lives on the side. So there's four of us that have just committed to this project. I'm one family member, the other two have great experience. They've worked on the 9-11 project with genealogy and identifying Americans from uh, the September 11th attacks. These are people that have really, really good um, uh, backgrounds and education in this. And it, by getting these high-level people on our team, it also made the DPA kind of uh, take us a little more seriously because um, we were giving them the information they needed but for some strange reason, they just didn't want to do it on their own. And, and that's what's sad. And Roger, the other thing with this project, we've not only collected, connected with so many USS Arizona family members, we have connected with dozens and dozens of family members that have been fighting the DPAA with their family member in other theaters of war. Family members calling me from their, their husband or their dad is missing from Vietnam. And they're saying, how did you do this? How did you break the wall? We've been fighting with the DPAA for years. We can't get answers. And, you know, uh, there there may be an opportunity here when the Arizona project is done to kind of use the resources, the efficiency, the methods that we've built to do this so quickly, hopefully to help other family members that are missing from the Korean War or missing from Vietnam War, the Cold War, there's unknowns. Um, you know, there's a lot of families out there that never got answers, and— um There's not an easy way to connect directly with the DPAA. Um, They're all funneled through their casualty offices, and those are the worker bees. Those are the hard people on the lower levels working their butts off, and they also have to answer the phones. It was uh, probably, Roger, five to six months of me uh, sending angry emails, tweets, uh, getting politicians involved, just to get my first meeting with the director of the DPAA. And we've had two. Uh, the first meeting was nothing more than an appeasement meeting where they basically said they, they couldn't be done. It was very early on. Uh, the second meeting was a complete um, turnaround. They realized that we were making a lot of noise with this. We were starting to get a lot of people involved. The numbers were increasing. They realized they just couldn't ignore us at that point. But it has been very difficult to break through that bureaucracy wall with some of these government agencies. And to all credit to the DPAA, I also understand now there's someone above them, and that's the Department of the Defense, that is telling them what to do. So even though I kind of put a lot of pressure on the DPA director and kind of point him as my, as my adversary to get this done, the truth is, I think if him and I talked privately, which we haven't ever done, but... Should we? I think he might say, Kevin, keep going. You're doing great. A lot of uh, employees, it's fun, Roger, when I get emails from government employees and I get them from their Gmails or Yahoo, I know right away I'm going to get good information because they're emailing me information and intel um, from their private emails because they just want to keep me going. We're on the right path. We're doing the right thing. Um, We just need to break through the bureaucracy. And I, I think we're right on the edge. And again, I appreciate, you know, people like you just letting me tell my story and and, and, and pushing it even a little bit further to where we can get this done. No right. American deserves to have unknown on their grave. All
1: right. Unfortunately, we are out of time. Let me thank my guest, uh, Kevin Klein, who is doing his civic duty uh, to help uh, our veterans uh, and their families. God bless you, my friend. And thanks for joining us on The Roger Strange Show. Thanks, Roger.
0: Appreciate it. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Presented by Legacy Precious Metals.
1: A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going, and he's smart, and he's strong, and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect
0: him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone
1: welcome back folks uh, this is the roger stone show here at 77 WABC, abc uh, and joining us now is uh, new jersey lawyer and activist paul inglesia uh, i saw an extraordinarily well-reasoned uh, piece that he wrote for substack in which uh, he made uh, a compelling case Uh, that under the precepts of the U.S. Constitution, that former U.N. Ambassador and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley may not actually be constitutionally eligible to be President of the United States. Now, this is a question that has come up in the past uh, in American politics. Uh, It was raised uh, when... John McCain uh, was elected because he was born in the Panama Canal Zone. Uh, and there was some question as to whether that uh, applied to the Constitution's requirement that one be natural born natural born citizen. Uh, a natural born citizen it also came up earlier than that when Connecticut Senator Lowell Weicker, who was born in Paris, France, decided to run for president. It didn't really matter because. Literally nobody voted for that guy, uh, and he was never going to be president. Obviously, there is the Obama birther controversy, which we're not here to talk about today. Uh, but I- I'm going to let Paul Iglesias lay out for us uh, his legal analysis uh, of why he believes uh, that Nikki Haley, who is now appears to be, uh, uh, at least for the time being, hanging in, in the race for president against President Donald Trump, is constitutionally eligible to be president. Paul, welcome to The Roger Stone Show.
4: Well, thank you so much, Roger. It's always an honor to speak with you. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting argument. I mean, as of now, there are a slew of reasons why Nikki Haley should not be running for president. Um, Of course, the eligibility clause uh, requirement that's stipulated in Article 2, Section 1, is just, you know, a small component of, of all that, of, all, of the entire equation. I mean, she's being funded by the same people who are financing these lawsuits against Donald Trump, so on and so forth. But for the purposes of this constitutional question, I think it's really an interesting and compelling case. Um, you know, recently, our friend Laura Loomer came up with this investigative report um demonstrating that neither one of Nikki Haley's parents were citizens at the time she was born um, in South Carolina in 1972. So the Constitution lays out pretty clearly and uh, what the requirements are in order to qualify for the presidency. You have to be here for 14 years residing within the United States for 14 years. You have to be at least 35 years of age. And the third requirement is that you have to be a natural born citizen. Now the language natural born citizen only appears in Article 2, Section 1. This notably is the only clause in the entire Constitution that lays out the specifications for the presidential office holder. Now the requirements to be a member of Congress, for example, are laid out in Article 1. It, it says that you have to be a citizen to be a member of the House or the Senate, but it doesn't say natural born citizen. So that language is notably omitted for for congressional members, as well as uh, judicial office holders as laid out in article three. So right off the bat, um, just you know, as a threshold matter, if you're just kind of applying the plain language of the text of the constitution itself, it would appear that there's a higher, that the framers of the Constitution, this we know is certainly true, um, wanted a higher standard for the presidential office holder, which of course is the highest office of the land than other federal office holders. So that's sort of like, you know, the, the, the original sort of uh, threshold issue. Now, if you go further into the analysis, the term natural born citizen only appears in article two. Um, So in order to get an originalist understanding, like what what this term actually meant for the people who adopted our Constitution for the Founding Fathers, um, resort has to be made to a text by the the, uh, famous legal theorist, this legal scholar um, who promoted um, a highly influential leading uh, legal treatise at the time the Founding Fathers adopted the Constitution. Um, this legal treatise was called the Law of Nations. It came out in 1758, about 30 years uh, prior to the adoption of our Constitution. And that's where the language natural-born citizen uh, comes from. And that's where James Madison adopted that language uh, when he ultimately implemented it into our own Constitution. Um, so. The term "natural-born citizen," while it may be ambiguous as to what its meaning, uh, what, what it means, based on just a textual analysis of our own Constitution, um, it, it's very clear what it meant according to um, that legal treatise by Emerick de Vital in the Law of Nations, and that said that um, his his work said, and I'll quote: um, "Natural-born citizens are born in the country of parents." who are citizens. So um, Article 2, Section 1 uses the language natural-born citizen. Um, It says that anyone could become president as long as they are natural-born citizens or citizens at the time the Constitution was adopted. So for those saying, well, you know, George Washington or John Adams, um, you know, their parents were not citizens because obviously it predated the Constitution. Um, you know, obviously they made a clause for that to qualify the original adopters of the Constitution itself. So, um, you know, if, if you go, if you're applying the original meaning of the term natural born citizen and, you know, Nikki Haley presents herself as a conservative, someone who would appoint originalist judges to the Supreme Court and to other federal courts um, who are tasked with faithfully applying uh, the the law, the Constitution based on its original meaning. Um, on that, on those grounds alone, um, it would seem that you know that that natural born citizen would not render her ineligible to run for president because both of her parents were not citizens at the time the Constitution was adopted. Now, there's more to this analysis, and we can go further into this, uh, Roger, but. Um, You know a few other questions that i have regarding Nikki haley is there is really very little online i mean i don't know if you've done a deep dive into this Um, maybe our friend laura has but you know what ultimately was the citizenship status of her parents when she was born on u.s soil i really can't find anything online about that um you know i think she as a national candidate you know as the second Obviously, she's far behind Donald Trump, but, you know, being running for the presidency, I think she owes her constituents and the American people at large um, sort of a comprehensive summary of the permanent resident status of her parents, a legal explanation of what their status was. Were they here on uh, student visas? Were they here on some sort of uh, business visa or something else? I mean, we, we don't know whether these people were even here lawfully or unlawfully. I mean, she claims they were lawfully domiciled in the United States, her parents, when she was born. But, you know, without the evidence supporting that, we we have no idea whether that's true or not. So I think um, she should, at the bare minimum, at the bare minimum, present uh, that evidence and give us a comprehensive overview and perhaps let independent, um, People uh, substantiate those claims that she's making, rather than her own campaign, and uh, because you know, as of right now, um, you know, one could not be at fault for for thinking that her parents were illegals and she was, you know, an anchor baby. But um, you know, there, there's a lot there that I just laid out. Um, probably under Nikki Haley's own analysis, and those who defend Nikki Haley um, are basically making the claim that. Anyone who crosses the southern border and, and arrives here, whether they're law, whether they're legally or illegally here, if they have a child on U.S. soil, that child is automatically allowed to become president of the United States. I mean, that is totally incompatible with the original meaning of the um, of the eligibility clause in Article Two, Section One. So, um, anyone who suggests that is is uh, certainly um, you know, going against what the Constitution plainly lays out and what the founding fathers also intended for the presidential office.
1: Uh, Paul, have the have the federal courts ever uh, substantially opined on what exactly the Constitution means when it says "natural-born citizen"?
4: Well, Roger, there have been a few cases, and the most famous case. Uh, most of these cases occurred after the Civil War, the late 19th century, um, you know, in the decades after the 14th Amendment was adopted. um, So those critics of my argument typically rely on the 14th Amendment and um, a a case by the name of Wang Kim Ark, which was a Supreme Court case that found that a Chinese uh, child, uh, basically Chinese foreign nationals were stationed in California. They were here lawfully um, in the late 1890s, and they had a child on U.S. soil. And this child apparently went back with the parents to China, and then um, tried to re-enter the United States. Now, this was during uh, the time in which the Chinese Exclusion Act was in effect. So that child was not able to get back into the United States because U.S. authorities at the time found the child um, to not be uh, a U.S. citizen. This was their, their reasoning. This was the reasoning of the uh, United States government um, because that child was born to uh, non-citizen parents. So this was a case that did not deal with, you know, a president of the United States. It just dealt with your average citizen. Now, the question I should just state uh, up front of whether birthright citizenship and whether the merits of long-term arc or whether the case itself is is a legally valid opinion is, is a matter up for debate, but I would say that's an entirely separate argument. The issue of birthright citizenship and whether we should be conferring birthright citizenship to uh, the child of Lawfully domiciled uh, um, alien residents here um, is a separate matter than the question of presidential eligibility. We know, as I stated earlier, that um, you know the founding fathers and the framers of the Constitution wanted to set a much higher bar for the presidential officeholder than members of Congress or or you know just basic citizenship. you know the basic privileges and immunities of citizenship. Um, was a much lower standard than someone running for president. So, Kwang Kim Ark is utterly silent on the issue of um, qualifications or eligibility for the presidency. Um, but that is the only case on the books that um, even sort of indirectly or tenuously deals with the question of, um, you know, birthright citizenship and presidential eligibility. Now, in that case, Wang Kim Ark, the majority opinion, uh, briefly glanced over the presidential eligibility question, um, but it did not give it a comprehensive analysis. It did not uh, do a comprehensive analysis of Article 2, Section 1. It kind of just mentioned it, but it did not um, address one way or the other whether uh, this opinion's holding would also impute to Article 2, Section 1. And then the rest of the opinion goes into, you know, uh, the rights of uh, this individual, Wong Kim R, and whether he should be conferred the basic privileges and immunities of citizenship because his parents were here. Um, although not citizens, they were here lawfully at the time. So aside from that opinion, Roger, uh, no other case is, uh, as far as I'm aware, uh, you know, goes into the question of presidential eligibility. Now, it's interesting to note that the dissent in Wong Kim Ark was joined by Justice uh, uh, Harlan, who famously also dissented in Plessy versus Ferguson. So that kind of just goes to show, I think, the merits of Wong Kim Ark in and of itself. And I think, honestly, this is a case that should also be uh, revisited by the Supreme Court. But again, that's an entirely separate matter. On the question of presidential eligibility, um, you know, critics would say, well, the 14th Amendment confers uh, natural born citizenship on anyone born here to um, foreign parents, whether they're here lawfully or not. But the phrase natural born citizen does not appear for one in the 14th Amendment. Um, number two, uh, the 14th Amendment clearly applied to uh, newly freed in the aftermath of the Civil War and the citizenship status of those, uh, those emancipated slaves. It had nothing, it was totally silent on the issue of presidential eligibility. Um, if the framers of the 14th Amendment believed that it would be uh, distorted um, and applied to the question of presidential eligibility, I'm sure, I'm confident that they would have written a separate clause in there specifying the higher threshold requirements for the presidential
1: office holder. All right, let's the go to pol- let's go to politics here uh, for just a minute. Sure. Uh, the The candidacy of Nikki Haley is intriguing to me. She's not competing in the Nevada primary, uh, right. neither the caucuses or the primary, or I believe she may be in the preferential. Primary, which is merely a beauty contest, but does not award any delegates. But she is not competing in the caucuses where actual delegates uh, are awarded. Uh, and then in her home state of South Carolina, things uh, are, are not looking good. I mean, Donald Trump is pulled out to an almost 30 point lead. The governor of South Carolina, Henry McMaster, strongly supporting uh, uh, Donald Trump, the lieutenant governor, strongly supporting Donald Trump, the leader of uh, the Republicans in both houses of the legislature, uh, both uh, supporting Donald Trump. Uh, mm-hmm. It is a state that, like New Hampshire, non-Republicans can vote in the primary. Actually, South Carolina has no party registration, meaning Republicans, Democrats, and independents uh, can all vote in either the Republican or Democratic primary. But the difference in South Carolina is uh, the independents don't lean left, they lean right. Uh, And, Mm -hmm. of course, there is also uh, a substantial number of at least 20 percent of conservative Democrats. They tend to be older. Uh, but uh, they are quite probably votes for Donald Trump. So the real question to me is, uh, what, what, is what is Nikki Haley's uh, goal? She's not going to be nominated for president. Uh, she could be doing what George H.W. Bush did in 1980, which is because she still has special interest money in the bank, despite her lack of viability, she stays in the race to try to uh, up her profile uh, and make it uh, more likely uh, that she can essentially leverage her way onto the ticket for vice president. I've seen uh, Clay Travis, a uh, radio personality, uh, articulate that over the last couple of days. I I, I don't think that that can work uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, there's the question of her personal integrity. She looked Donald Trump in the eye and she told him you're among our greatest presidents. If you run again, I will not run. Uh, And then she ran. But then secondarily, uh, her defense and foreign policy views, I hate to say this, but they are identical to Joe Biden's. So Mm -hmm. what we really see here is uh, a uniparty effort to have a foot in both major parties and she is the the fallback uh for the uh, for the, the the deep state uh in their out that they can either continue to damage donald trump by her staying in the race or uh, they try to leverage her on the ticket in which case i have said uh, if were she to be vice president donald trump would need a food taster yes
4: no, I, I think that's exactly right, Roger, and I think, you know, the results of New Hampshire made that uh, quite clear, that she is the vessel or the vehicle for the uni party, for the establishment, for the Democrats. I mean, most of her voters, at least in the state of New Hampshire, and I'm sure this will be true elsewhere if she remains in the primary process, will be Democrats or never Trump or Republicans, but basically all liberals. Um, that's the only way that she's uh, maintaining the little momentum that she has, and of course she has a lot of funding from uh, big money Democrat spenders, people like Reid Hoffman, who's also financing this ridiculous uh, case now transpiring, um, you know, with the E Jean Carroll downtown Manhattan where I am right now. So, um, you know, she is definitely a vessel for the establishment, for the Uniparty, for the Deep State. Her po- foreign policy views are. Neoconservative and are definitely in lockstep with Biden, with Bush, uh, with McCain. Um, so she's exactly that. Um, and I think that you hit it right out of the park with that. Well, uh, let's hope, and it seems like many Americans have woken up to that reality and that she is, you know, she is a true snake, as Donald Trump likes to uh, frequently talk about on the campaign trail. Um, trying to fl- slip herself back into the administration. It's, 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 it's um, the, the real tragedy with this whole thing is that it's a colossal waste of time, energy, and resources that should otherwise be spent on Donald Trump. Um, we know the RNC yesterday issued a statement that you know they would um, potentially uh, you know make Trump the presumptive nominee re- regardless of the outcome of the. Um, primaries and Trump, of course, quickly shot that down saying he wants it uh, to play out, given the lack of loyalty that the RNC has showed Trump all throughout this as well. But I think you, you're exactly right. And I think, you know, hopefully Nikki Haley's um, campaign will soon come to an end and we can forget about talking about bird brain um, and she'll be relegated to the dustbin of history, much like our friend, the sanctimonious.
1: All right. Thank you, Paul uh, Inglesia, a New Jersey lawyer, supporter of President Donald Trump, for joining us today on The Stone Zone. Paul, because you are uh, a member of the Italian American Civil Rights League, you appreciate the fact that I promised my listeners from the beginning of the show uh, that uh, my mother's, therefore my grandmother's, meatball recipe would be revealed so here it is i hope you all had time to get pen and paper to write this down first you're going to want to preheat heat the oven to 350 degrees and put a pyrex dish uh, at the bottom filled with water you're going to see why that comes in handy later you want to saute some onions some garlic in a uh, high quality uh, olive oil there are special olive oils that are specifically for sautéing. You can get them at Grissini's. Uh, in a big bowl, you want to add three pounds of meat. That is uh, one pound of ground beef, one pound of ground veal, one pound of ground pork. Add uh, a cup and a half of freshly grated Parmesan cheese. You also then want to add three cups of Italian breadcrumbs six eggs that you have whipped uh, and some fresh chopped garlic, uh, uh, parsley, but only uh, a quarter cup. Uh, uh, In the beginning, by the way, I should say you want uh, a fair amount of garlic uh, and onions. I'm talking about, you know, a couple of good-sized heads of garlic. Now, you add to that mixture one tablespoon of oregano, one tablespoon of basil, one tablespoon of thyme, one tablespoon of marjoram, uh, one tablespoon of ground black pepper, the coarse kind, uh, and then two tablespoons of kosher salt. To that mixture, I add three quarters of a cup of water. Now, I form my meatballs, try to keep them kind of loose, but making sure that they hold together. I then brown them in the same pan Where i sauteed the onions and the garlic at the beginning of this recipe but keep turning them over because you you don't want them to be flat on any side Uh, after they are slightly browned you will put them on a large baking sheet uh, and you will go back to the oven which you already preheated uh, at 350 remember that pyrex dish in the bottom with the water very important in terms of keeping your meatballs moist Uh, you will bake for 40 minutes uh, and you're done you drop that into your basic marinara sauce Uh, we've given that recipe a number of times we'll do it again Uh, and you will have the perfect uh, meatball so there it is that is my grandmother corbo's recipe uh, for the perfect Italian meatball. We had a lot of requests for that since our very first show, and I'm proud to share it, enjoy it uh, on this cold Sunday. Uh, I'm Roger Stone. This has been my pleasure to be with you today on The Roger Stone Show. Please stay tuned for my good friend Joe Piscopo, who will be right along shortly with Sundays with Sinatra.